Welcome back to Patently Obvious, the podcast where we interview IP lawyers about what went into preparing for landmark cases. I'm Michael Gnuish, and with me is Alex Delaney. Today, we're talking about Booking.com, which was argued right at the beginning of the pandemic. Actually, it was the first case in U.S. history to be argued by telephone. For the first time in history, the Supreme Court will be holding oral arguments over the phone. And the public, you and me, we can listen. What can you tell me about this case? The case is called U.S. Patent and Trademark Office v. Booking.com. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 2020 and decided the issue of trademarking a generic website. Booking.com is a website for booking hotels and other amenities. With endless possibilities, you won't believe what you'll find. Live curious. Booking.com. And the company applied to trademark their company name. Usually the USPTO doesn't grant trademarks to generic company names. For example, if I wanted to call my bookstore Books, I would not be able to do so because that would stop other book companies from using books to describe their business. The Supreme Court held, however, that adding .com to a generic term might be trademarkable if the primary significance of the term to the public referred to a specific company and not to a class of goods. I interviewed Lisa Blatt and Sarah Harris, the attorneys who argued and wrote the brief for booking. Sounds like an interesting case. What can you tell me about Sarah and Lisa? Lisa Blatt clerked for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg when she was on the D.C. Circuit and joined Williams and Connolly's trial division. After a 30-year stint at the Solicitor General's office, Lisa returned to Williams and Connolly and now heads their appellate litigation department. In 2020, Benchmark Litigation selected Lisa as one of the top 10 women in litigation in the U.S., and she argued 40 cases before the Supreme Court, more than any woman in U.S. history. She has argued cases from every sector of the law, from health sciences to the music industry. Sarah Harris clerked for Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court and joined Williams and Connolly's Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation team in 2019. Before that, Sarah was a partner at Arnold and Porter and then served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legal Counsel in the United States Department of Justice. Sarah's cases have also covered a wide range of topics from constitutional law to products liability. The National Law Journal called Sarah a rising star. Let's go ahead and hear your full interview with Ms. Blatt and Ms. Harris, where you talk about Booking.com, trademark law generally, and their advice for scientists looking to get into IP law and the appellate bar. Thank you, Sarah and Lisa, for joining us here today. Uh, Lisa, you argued 40 cases before the Supreme Court, more than any woman in U.S. history. What case did you argue first before the Supreme Court? My first case was Regents versus Doe, I think the name of it was. It was the University of California. I don't know if it was a former employee, but it was an 11th Amendment case involving whether a state university is an arm of the state. And the court held 9-0 that it was. And the case actually gets cited a fair amount. It was a um, significant me for a couple of reasons. First, it was about the University of California was a Department of Energy contractor. And I had just come from the Department of Energy. And so uh, Justice Ginsburg, for whom I'd clerked, kept asking me, uh, it was a very simple case in terms of the legal issues. And she just kept asking me softballs about the Department of Energy and everyone was sort of cracking up. And the other significant thing about the case was 
I think I spoke for maybe a minute and a half. There were like, I think Justice Stevens, well, actually, there's a bunch of significant things, including that I cried twice at my first moot courts. But Justice Stevens asked a question that was such a stress for me. And he just says, I assume you don't have a position on this particularly difficult question. Is that correct? And I said, that's correct. <laughs> In any event, when I finished my notes, I finished everything I had to say. And I looked down at my notes and I said, I don't have any more points to make, which is not what you would ever say at an argument, but I didn't have anything else to say. And the old Chief Justice Rink was said, that's okay, Ms. Blatt, we don't either. And everybody laughed and sat, I sat down. So that was my first argument. It was just not a very good first argument. Got to start somewhere. <laughs> um, Sarah, you have a PhD and an MPhil in addition to your law degree. Do your other degrees influence your law practice? And if yes, how? So to be clear, my PhD was about the CIA's covert support for anti-communist intellectuals in the early Cold War. Uh, and I think it'll be no surprise to hear that the subject matter does not come up often in the appellate practice. But I will say those degrees taught me so much that I use now in my day-to-day -day law practice. As someone who's a believer in originalism, my love of historical research has truly served me well, especially clerking for Justice Thomas. And writing a book about a historical episode really teaches you how to tell a story and hopefully present it in a way that engages the readers. And I use that every day for fact sections. And then interviewing very intimidating former Cold Warriors was a great lesson in not being afraid to pick up the phone and talk to people who are sort of scarily accomplished and somewhat famous. And so... That is a skill I use every day with clients who can be pretty intimidating, um, and I'm really glad that I got that experience early. Lisa, you have said that you began with trial work, and then you realized that appellate work suited you better. What differentiates trial and appellate work, and why might someone prefer one over the other? Well, I think what I accurately said was that I was a disaster at trial work. Not that I preferred appellate work, but I was singularly <laughs> bad at trial work. <laughs> so I think it's not really fair to say that I chose one over the other as a preference. So my big motto is do what you're good at. And I was just not good at trial work. I think the, the, the conventional wisdom is that to be a good appellate lawyer, you should do trial work and to be uh, you know, a good trial lawyer, you should do appellate and they should be, you know, mixed. And I'm just not a believer in that. I find them very distinct. I find trial work, I think that the thing that the skill that it required that I did not have was one of multitasking and attention to detail. And I think I'm married to a, a litigator and he's very precise and, and good with very small details, doesn't mind a lot of conflict and is good with a, a million balls in the air. And I've never been like that. I'm very much, I like to singularly focus on one particular thing. Yeah, I, I definitely, after reading that statement from you, it also showed me that I would love to do appellate work one day as well. Um, I mean, a lot of people do both and can mix and match and don't want to focus just on one. It's just that my personality is, I find that people who are good at trial work are incredibly well organized and I am not, just not. Is it common for people to start in trial work and then go to appellate work or is it possible to break in? So, I know uh, I'm unconventional because I started out thinking I wanted to do criminal defense law, you know, work and trial work. I wanted to be the next Brendan Solomon. I wanted to go to Williamson Conley because it was famous for trial work. And it was just a disaster. And then I ended up at the Department of Energy. So I fell into appellate and didn't do appellate work until the SG's office was looking to hire women. So I had no interest in appellate. You know, I didn't try to follow some footsteps of 
of doing appellate. I do think being a high school debater, and I know Sarah was a debater too, I think being a debater makes you kind of either like law or maybe even like the appellate stuff because you like debating. But I don't think there's one particular path, but I do think clerkships for judges are, even for district court, it's just well suited to do appellate law because you get used to brief writing and how briefs read, if that makes sense. 100%. Sarah, both of you have moved from private practice to government practice and back to private practice. What can you say about the experiences you gained from each and what are the respective advantages and drawbacks? So I'll start off by saying the way you framed your question makes it sound like I had an awesome master plan of, you know, getting a little bit, <laughs> getting dipping a toe into each water, you know, getting a lot of experience that way. When I was in law school, I thought I was going to have a career government job. I never dreamed I was going to be in a law firm, and I certainly never dreamed I was going to like being in a law firm. So the first thing to know about this question is your instincts in law school may be absolutely terrible, or you just don't know what's going to hit you in your career. And that's a good thing because it's very hard to kind of map out what's going to happen to you. Um, and being open to saying yes to different opportunities keeps it fun. So it was a surprise to me how much I actually do love private practice. And mostly that's because I'm lucky to practice law with people I like who have a good sense of humor. Uh, Lisa in that category and most of my other colleagues do as well. And I also like you get to be a generalist in private practice in particular. You know, one day it might be an antitrust case. Another day you're, you know, doing fun trademark cases. And the day after that is class actions. I have a case on the railroad retirement board right now. It's just such a fun mix of stuff. Um, and I also like the competitive aspect of private practice, a real upside. There is a fun feeling of working on a small team and filing it and hoping that the other side really like reads it and weeps. Uh, and that's also a very kind of, I think a Williams and Connolly kind of feel. I don't think they would have hired me in law school, but now that I'm at the firm, I just feel like I'm home it's to a place that really is kind of a family. So really lots of upsides, not a lot of downsides in terms of how private practice has been. I think you know, it's a place you could see yourself forever, which is nice. And then for public service, I was a deputy assistant attorney general at the Office of Legal Counsel for almost two years. And I really would have happily stayed longer if Williams and Connolly hadn't presented a now or never offer. I think that's probably one of the most interesting jobs in government. So that was a real plus side. You get to advise the White House Counsel's Office, the Department of Justice, and other agencies about what the best view of the law is. And, you know, agencies come to you saying, can I do this? Yay or nay? Also, you know, you have 30 minutes to figure out a hard legal question or, you know, you have three months to figure it out. It is so interesting in terms of no one comes to you if it's not a hard question. It's also one of the most intense jobs in government. So the downside was I remember doing literally two weeks of all-nighters right after having a baby, which was not optimal. And that was the main drawback. But I think especially getting to serve your country, doing work that you believe in that's important is a huge upside. So the pros always outweighed the cons. And I would also say, you know, it's an office that's small. It's about 25 people. And the current head, Steve Engel, is an excellent manager. So I, that's kind of one of the underappreciated aspects of government, that you can learn a lot about managing an office when you go in. I just wanted to add to that because I have a very different perspective. I went into a law firm. It happened to have been Williams and Conley. And like I said, was a disaster. I just felt like everything was over my head. I didn't have any good training or know what I was doing. And I needed government, not in a management job, but as a basically line attorney I, mean, I went in as a Schedule C, but I just needed time to mature and grow and kind of learn how to function in an environment. I was very young when I graduated law school and I just was really immature. And I just needed, I think I needed those 16 years 
in order for me to to gain some confidence. I probably had confidence before the end of those 16 years, but government was easier for me to get trained than at a law firm where I felt like it was kind of, you needed to be have a sense of confidence and presentation and poise that I just didn't have. I was basically a deer in the headlights or a fish out of water or whatever the expression is. That makes sense. Lisa, Booking.com was historic as the first case in the court's history to be argued remotely and the first case where live audio was available to the public. How did preparation for the remote oral arguments differ from your preparation for the other 39 times you argued before the court? So I'm a slave of routine. I pretty much prepared for argument similar to my first argument. And so when I heard the argument was going to be by phone, it was definitely very arresting. And I kind of had to hit the reset, reset button. I knew substantively I would have to prepare similarly, but because I'm a big believer in oral argument being very theatrical on a show, it seemed like I had to figure out, okay, but this is a presentation orally and not visually. And all the technology became sort of very stressful. So it was just a very different experience. I've spent an enormous amount of time on the logistics. I mean, an enormous amount of time where I would do the argument, what furniture would be there, what the phone system would be like, the headset, the podium, the setup of the room. It was just an enormous amount of time. The moots had to be all done differently because they had to replicate the telephone experience. So that whole process and just prepping in the middle of COVID because everybody was remote. So it was a lot. And Sarah had just had a baby. I don't know whether she was three weeks out, four weeks out, or some very short time after having a baby. So we had to work. Uh, It was just logistically a a completely new experience. Now I think I could handle a telephone argument without all that stress. And the court was also going through the same thing. You know, they picked booking as the first argument. They wanted it as the first argument. And so we spent a lot of time with court personnel and the SG's office running through Literally, we practiced all kinds of stuff. We practiced interrupting each other. We did all these sound checks. I think we had two prep sessions with the court. So it was super fun. And it was a lot of people from the court because they wanted to go through all kinds of scenarios. It was fun. That was maybe a week before, but there was just a lot of stress up until that. I think I went through three podiums, one that damaged my house as I tried to my husband tried to carry it up the stairs and it fell. Yeah, I think I'll remember it as an argument in which I would get calls from Lisa about two pressing questions, which will never again be the most pressing questions. One was, what do I do if there's a lawnmower outside? (laughs) How do I get my neighbors not to do their lawns at this point? And two was, can you please have your husband come over and like take a socially distant walk with my son so that our dogs are like away from the house (laughs) and don't make noise? Yeah, that was a whole apparatus, too, was getting rid of my 21-year-old son and five-year-old dog. So Sarah's husband came over and took my son and the dog and his dog for had to be out of the house, I think, for two hours. And then my husband, my 19-year-old daughter, and Sarah all had roles to play during the argument. <laughs> so wow. it's fun. In retrospect, stressful at the time. Now I'm, I'm laughing. I wasn't laughing at the time. Super interesting and historic, really. Sarah? How was the strategy for the case born? You made the courageous claim that the Lanham Act overruled Goodyear. What is the process by which you begin to tackle a legal question? So that's, it's funny that you call it courageous because I sort of thought it was less courageous and more obvious. I guess because my reaction to the government's petition and opening brief, which Lisa shared, was 
Their take on Goodyear just seemed to not reflect reality. I mean, Goodyear, of course, is from 1888. There are plenty of cases where it's not like you can say it's old, so it's bad. But I remember immediately when we started talking about the case thinking, huh, I just drove past the container store. This does not seem like it can be the law because if it were the law, there would be no container store. And so that was my instinct. And then, you know, we obviously did a lot of research into cases like the Supreme Court's decision in Qualitex and looking into really the history of a lot of other per se common law rules and how they had gotten abrogated by the Lanham Act. And so really digging in and getting a picture in our heads, which the Romag case actually, which Lisa just argued dovetailed nicely with this, but getting a sense of how did trademark law look before 1946 Lanham Act? What was the lay of the land? What, what was the reason behind why certain things could be trademarked? Why was Goodyear kind of a product of that era? That really helped us understand, okay, well, the intuition that it is not the law anymore is correct because the Lanham Act really did abrogate Goodyear and the idea that there is a sort of bright line rule against trademarks, no matter how much consumers think that they are in fact distinctive. Uh, and that kind of drove the case, uh, both in terms of our discussion of history in the brief, but also a lot of like the sort of common sense points about, well, you know, if their container store is a trademark, I wonder what else is a trademark, which led to the appendix, which Spoiler alert, Lisa, I think, spent more time on the appendix than anything else. But that's kind of what really got us into the case to confirm our sort of initial intuition with both a lot of legal research and then a lot of kind of real world, what is the PTO actually doing research? So this wasn't on the uh, on the list, so I'm not, this is not going to necessarily be part of the podcast, but I thought you had the better argument, but the Supreme Court seems to toe the line by saying that, you know, we do do the uh, consumer, you know, test, but it doesn't overrule Goodyear. But. Yeah, I mean, that was the, that, I think that that's right. That was the government's argument was sure, but Goodyear has a very simplistic appeal that you can't possibly trademark Orange Company. But then when you start saying you can't trademark Goodyear Company, but it is trademarked, the government's arguments started to fall apart. But generally, they were right. But look, their Example they kept citing over and over in the brief was Crab House was generic for just a restaurant that sells crabs. And literally, I think we'd had the case for four months. And then we had this eureka moment that, wait, there's Waffle House. I remember that day. I was so proud of myself. We were like <laughs> screaming. It's like, wait a minute, we've won. Waffle House? Waffle House is toast. <laughs> Waffle, I mean, just that we knew we had won. Lisa, during the oral arguments, Justice Kavanaugh asked about a bright line rule going in the other direction, allowing any generic .com to get a descriptive mark. Why did you think that was wrong under the statute? The district court held that all generic .coms were presumptively descriptive, but would not be registered unless they proved secondary meaning. Whether or not it's wrong or right is irrelevant. You knew that it was too extreme. So it was just not a winnable argument. So I knew the court was never going to hold that if you stick a .com on, you were automatically subject to trademark because it had a source identifying function. But I think it was Justice Ginsburg, too. It became this very tricky balancing act to sort of say, but booking.com is distinctive, but we're not trying to bring in washingmachines.com. And so it became very hard to explain why booking.com could pass a survey, but washingmachine.coms couldn't. I think it was Justice Kagan who asked, how are you going to get around that problem? So we had to come up with examples of generic sounding .coms that you would use in parlance. And that's when we came up with the grocery .com. 
the example of that or fooddelivery.coms, that you would use that in parlance not to refer to a source, but just to refer to a, you know, a very generic or descriptive term to a, cl- a class. And, and, and Justice Ginsburg picked up on it too in the decision with no one talks about booking.coms, but it was definitely, you have seized on probably the most analytically complicated issue as a matter of trademark law that was driving the district court, the court of appeals, and several of the justices were seizing right on this is that, wait a minute, your argument takes you to a place that proves too much. So it was hard. You had to come up with examples that were why booking.com wins, but will exclude at least some. The other thing, the reason why I thought I had a lot of confidence answering that question is Sarah is right. I think I spent, I don't know, unlimited number of hours looking at the PTO database. I think I decided I went through, what, 200,000 trademarks. So I became very familiar with the types of trademark applications that had come in and had seen, I don't know, 60, 70, hundreds of ones that had been rejected and then hundreds of ones that had been accepted. And so I had examples at my fingertips where certain dot-coms made it through and certain dot-coms didn't. So I could with confidence say the PTO was able to distinguish between ones that were good enough and that weren't. So why can't my argument make, be consistent with what, what the law should be? That took an enormous amount of labor and sense of hours to come up with those examples because you had to pour through the database. It was it was time consuming. And as Sarah, I think early on we distinguished the case between she was going to do all the law and I was going to do all the the database stuff. And then she would tell me when my database results fit her fit her narrative. <laughs> wow, that does seem like a, a inordinate amount of work. But honestly, when I was reading through the history all the way from the PTO decision. To the Supreme Court, that's what was troubling to me because they kept on saying generic.com is not source identifying. That's where they, they literally copy pasted it from McCarthy. And I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> so honestly, those initial instincts, it's funny when you first look at a case tend to be what the justices are always asking about an argument is that you get so deep into a case by the time you've briefed and prepared for argument. But when you argue it, they're back to that very initial conundrums that you see when you first look at a case. That's very interesting. Oh, yeah, it is. Because by the time you don't realize that by the time you're up there, you're like, oh, wait a minute, you're back where I was six months ago. (laughs) That's fascinating. Sarah, all of the justices and many amicus curiae were worried about monopolizing terms like e-booking and travel booking. While there haven't yet been many such suits, as Lisa pointed out during oral arguments, what do you think the future holds? So I think this is one where we've been talking a little bit about the reality of what the PTO does. And I think reality, again, is comforting. The PTO really does often register marks that use different variants on a word, like variants on travel or variants on flight for travel companies. They may not be on the principal register, but they're at least on you know the supplemental register. And I do think if companies cross the line and try to co-opt the other company's goodwill, you would see litigation. It's just this seems to happen all the time. And so as a practical matter, I'm not sure that you know the decision is going to open the floodgates to people thinking that no one can ever use the word booking in one, you know, or a derivation in their in their name anymore. So I think the market kind of takes care of it and I'm not too concerned about it, but we'll see. I've seen a flood of ads, though, with care.com and all kinds of dot-coms that were pretty generic sounding. My only comment on that one is, Michael, is that you just see this all the time without outside the dot-com. There are so many variations on hotels or really any word you could possibly think of, pizza, whatever the product is, there are very, very similar sounding trademark names, every conceivable coffee in any conceivable category, pancakes, 
there's just one little word difference and, you know. Right. So it's interesting that, you know, the, the real world really answers this question, right? We can get lost in the world of theoretical slippery slope arguments. I've come to learn that those arguments are, are rarely salient. Or we can just look at, you know, reality. And that's what you did really well. I mean, many hours later. Well, I do think Justice Breyer was very persuaded by that argument. I do think yeah, that, no, that, that drove him. He yeah. was very driven by that policy. All of the justices, I think, expressed the policy concern, except maybe Thomas, who was with us on Sarah's Goodyear analysis. <laughs> I think he was the only one that was not worried about the policy. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess he's kind of a textualist. Well, I do think we would have had a real problem if we hadn't done done, done the work on the common law history with Justice Thomas. And Justice Breyer was more of a surprise. I mean, I think we did very much expect the justices to have a lot of policy concerns because the government's brief did a very nice job of raising the specter of a lot of any, any competitive consequences. That was their theme. Like, how can you let these sort of big players dominate the market? It's really unfair. It squeezes people out. And so if Lisa hadn't been able to give the, the justices some real world comfort, I think we, we could have had some issues. Uh, Justice Breyer, though, I, I was surprised by his vote simply because he wrote Qualitex. And so, you know, <laughs> it's so funny when you write just uh, briefs and think about how different justices will react. I mean, I wrote the brief thinking, Justice Breyer, like, surely he's going to love this stuff. Like, there's so many lines from Qualitex for him. <laughs> he was having none of it. Yeah, no, I mean, he seems to have copied down Professor Tushnet's brief pretty closely. And he was also, I heard that he was the only one that like taught IP law or something from all the justices. But huh. I mean, well, I that. Justice Ginsburg's daughter is an IP scholar and Justice Sotomayor was an IP attorney. And what I love about uh, trademark and even copyright, but more trademark is that you shouldn't have to be an IP lawyer to decide how to brief and argue these cases. There are they're basically just the commercial marketplace. And so as a very fierce online and off, you know, brick and mortar shopper, I don't know why my views are, aren't any better than anyone else's. Fair enough. <laughs> the Supreme Court agreed. So what else do we need? <laughs> Lisa, I read an article where you speak of your unique experience as a quote unquote lady lawyer. That's the word. Those are the words you use. Can you address the women in our audience and advise them on owning their femininity while navigating the legal world? I think a lot of it is just owning your identity, too. And so whoever you are, as a woman, it's hard to run away from that identity, especially if you have children and you're the primary caretaker. I mean, the same issue could happen with a man who was had a lot of child care and responsibilities. But for me, I've always... All I ever wanted to do was to get married and have kids. I cared more about being a mom than even being married. And I don't know why. I think I just liked dolls growing up. Who knows and who cares? I always wanted to be a mom and just struggled with that and came to very low points in my life where I you know, almost quit. So and tried to quit. I think I did quit and uh, just, you know, just struggled with it. So I, I think I like the way I am now, where I sort of just said, screw it. I mean, I probably could have gotten a lot further in life had I been more polite about getting through my struggling. But I think I became much happier when I just said, it's, you know, I'm going to just do whatever I want. And if I suffer as a result, then that'll be it. I just was very, very fortunate to have a boss in the SG's office who did not mind 
you know, who put up with me when I was trying to have kids and struggling the most. Very lucky. And I'm not sure everyone is that lucky. I think it's hard being, and it may be hard just being anything, you know, if you care about your career and you care about other things. But for me, I just felt a lot of pull and guilt about being a mom. I love how you wrote that you just have to become such a good lawyer that he can't do without you. And then they're willing to accommodate your. Well, yeah, no, I, that I absolutely believe because if you're, yes, I do believe that you should do. That's my whole shtick on do what you're good at because you'll have more control if you're good at something than if it's just, Oh, I'm so passionate about it. You end up being, you know, in a long, long line and towards the bottom and having to sacrifice a lot. If you're in competition with a lot of other people who are doing the same thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry if the question was a little bit... Uh... No, I just had a... Um, it was a Yale student, a college student, write me a very long letter because I taught a class and she said she was very moved by that article, mainly because it talked about how I started law school as a very poor, insecure student. And she talked about how she felt very out of place at Yale. And I just think it's important for people everywhere to not be ashamed of feeling inadequate. These are just completely normal feelings. And I think I spent a lot of my early career being sort of ashamed of who I was and not and feeling inadequate. And I liked sharing that. And people are like, wow, you felt that way? I'm like, give me a break. I was surprised that most people don't feel that way, that they don't feel insecure. So anyway, I liked ex- explaining all that stuff. And I, it was important to me to say that to law students. No, I, I thought your article was in, was fantastic and rare, I guess. Right. I'm into uh, Brene Brown. Are you guys familiar with her? No, I remember Peter Kaiser once said that Lisa, you're so, I guess a couple of people have said, why are you so blunt and why are you so willing to share? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you be? But again, I don't understand. <laughs> just a lot of filter. In that vein, uh, you were recently featured on a panel that discussed the dearth of women arguing before the Supreme Court. What advice do you have for women or I guess anyone who wish, wishes to pursue appellate litigation? So I guess I would say two things. And one of them touches on what Lisa was just saying about feeling intimidated when you start off. I mean, I certainly felt like that. And I, I think most people do, even if they don't own up to it, because the appellate bar is like really <laughs> fancy, super fancy. What? Why are you laughing? I can't imagine you being, Sarah, I've been working for Sarah since I met her, so I'm having trouble with her being intimidated, but that's okay. No, I, I guess maybe I like hide it or something, but um, the Supreme Court, like Lisa's argued 40 cases. I mean, she's very disarming in person, so that helps, but it is a very fancy bar. And so when you're like just out of law school or maybe right off of a clerkship, like I didn't clerk for the Supreme Court till later on. I was very intimidated by the fact that I hadn't done that. And you know, I think you just have to think, I'm going to try this. I'm not going to give up. Appellate law is an area of law in particular where it can take some time to get good at it because figuring out how to write a brief and figuring out how to answer all the arguments and figuring out how to do different types of briefs requires like doing it a couple of times. And so not thinking at the outset, wow, like, you know, this was not like the perfect brief that I had in my head um, and listening to criticism of the brief is important. Like you have, I think to be a good appellate lawyer, whether you're a man or a woman or whatever, I think being open to criticism and using it to, as a driver as opposed to something that scares you is incredibly important. Like Lisa, when I you know first started doing briefs, would sometimes be like, this is awesome. And other times she would make vomit sounds. And 
that was really helpful because I wanted to get better. And so knowing what did not work was great. And Lisa will still like read my brief sometimes and be like, this does not work. And I like to hear that even though I'll sort of be like, but I spent so much time. It seems so perfect. Because if Lisa feels like that, then there's probably something wrong and the justices will feel like that. And um, I'm a perfectionist. So I guess I feel like that is the accessible part of appellate law too, that you keep getting better. And if you're open to criticism and sort of take it to heart, it is something you really can get good at. And the other thing is obviously, it's like the most generic and boring advice ever, but it really is an area where finding a mentor is maybe even more important than other areas of law, because most of the Supreme Court bar, or many people in the Supreme Court bar, are argument hogs. <laughs> There's no nice way of saying that. They are argument hogs. I mean, people... The, the name of the game is racking up lots and lots of Supreme Court arguments. Uh, and so that is awesome. If you work for that person as a junior associate, you'll get a lot of experience. But at a certain point, you hope to be able to get your own Supreme Court argument. And I'm just lucky because Lisa is not an argument hog. And so she has fortunately made it her mission, not just for me, but for other people in my firm to try to help us get our own Supreme Court arguments, because that really kind of is the only way to return to your original question about how can women um, pursue appellate litigation? I mean, the numbers of women and minorities before the Supreme Court in any given year are really low. It's about 12% for women, probably less than that for minorities. And there's, you know, all sorts of reasons you could debate for that. Is it even above 2% for minorities? I think so, because, well, we can talk about why that was, but yes, it is over 2%. Um, So I think if you don't have people looking out for you and you don't have a kind of set of friends to talk when you feel intimidated or like self-conscious to talk about it, it's easy to kind of throw in the towel and sort of be like, ah, I don't know about this. It's very cutthroat. But Lisa's had my back and my firm's had my back. And I have a lot of like nerdy appellate friends who also have my back. And my husband is also a nerdy appellate alert, a, a nerdy appellate person. And so that really helped. That's great. And to close out our questions, do any of you have general advice for students in law school, what they should be focusing on in their class selection or in their studies in general, et cetera? Yeah, I, I do think it's, I mean, this is true for me in law school and part of that article. Definitely get to know professors. Try to get as much advice from as different people as possible because there are people like me who have contrarian advice and sometimes it's good to hear that and then you'll hear something else and things, okay, what Lisa said made no sense, but what this other person said really spoke to me and that's my path. Watch a lot of people because that's what I did. I watched a ton of people argue and thought that was the only way to find my argument voice was to emulate people that I felt like I could copy. Expose yourself. Don't forget to take risks and don't forget and don't don't be ashamed by failure. It's inevitable. But then also sometimes you just have to change, you know, course correction. If it's like, that's just not something I'm good at. I'm going to have to do something else and just do it. At some point, not now, but in your late 30s, early 40s, stop trying to climb a ladder and figure out something else that's important to you, whether it's family, religion, some sort of passion, but don't make that your work because you're going to end up being miserable because work plateaus. Trust me, it will plateau. And if that's all that matters to you, and if you're just thinking about grades or the next clerkship or the next job, you're going to hit a plateau. And it's just, you're going to freak out if when you realize there's not a whole lot of places to go. So your life better have some meaning other than just what's my next job. Don't worry about that now. You got a decade or so before you got before you plateau. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> you got a long time. But at some point, the what's that called? Is it the ladder, the rat race, whatever you want to call it? It just tends to you got to shift gears at some point when you get through your first couple jobs. 
That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I would argue that that's something that should be underlying everything. I mean, from the beginning, but. Yeah, but think about your parents. I mean, your parents were changing jobs at some point in their life. They settled into something and hopefully they found meaning in their life other than through just their work. You know, probably you. 100%. Sarah, do you have anything to add? You know, I, I really like the IP bar having kind of got to know it a little better with the cases from the last term, because I think it's it's just a nice group of folks who kind of all know each other and talk to each other a lot. That's kind of my impression of it. It's kind of like the appellate bar in that sense. People will compete with each other on cases, but they're also kind of friends and they all kind of have opinions on different things. And they're very, very active on blogs. And so I think like for students, I think getting a feel for who you like, whose perspective you like by reading up on like the blogs and kind of following people's high profile cases that you read about on those blogs is a great way of figuring out, do you like IP litigation as it actually is in the real world? Because the other thing about IP litigation, of course, is it's one thing to sort of like, you know, read your copyright treatise and think like these cases are really cool. Um, And another thing to sort of see how the cases are litigated and think, okay, that's awesome. Like, I would love to brief this. I would love to argue this. This is so neat. Like, I could argue about that all day. And so getting a taste of what IP litigation is like in the real world, whether it's as a summer associate or just sort of like talking to people who practice in the field or even like reading briefs in these cases, I think is a good way of figuring out how your interest that's sort of academic, maybe starting off in law school, translates into a practice that you might actually enjoy. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by me, Michael Gnuish, and Kyla from Fiverr. Shipping Lanes is by Chad Crouch and Road Trip is by Jane Doe, all via the free music archive. For questions or comments, reach out to us at ippodcast at gmail.com. This is Patently Obvious. <laughs>